Well, as, as we long for God to, to continue to transform us and make us into the hope-carrying and kingdom-proclaiming people who He has sent to transform our city and our community, um, we're, we're continuing on in our series this morning, Kingdom Come. That's our prayer, Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. So we're continuing on in our Kingdom Come series, and, and we've been uh, reading our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we continue this morning in Matthew's Gospel, and we're reading from Matthew chapter 16. Uh, and if you would like to, uh, however way you read God's Word these days, there's, there's church Bibles there, it's on page 983 of a church Bible, if you would like to open that up, if you would like to follow along your own Bible or your, or your device or however, but we'll be reading this together, then we'll be, we'll be referring back to passages there, so if you have that open in front of you. I think you would find that helpful. This is page 983 of our church Bibles, and we're reading from verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So this term, the Son of Man, is a term lifted from Daniel that referred to Jesus. So he's referring to himself. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Amen and amen. Well, these verses from Matthew chapter 16, they really take us to the heart of the gospel. They really take us to the heart of the message of the kingdom. And I think that as we gather around this table, there are lots, there's lots that we could bring out of Matthew 16. But I believe that as we gather around the table this morning, I think the Lord wants to remind us simply 
of those things that are at the very heart of the Christian faith. At the very center of the gospel and at the center of his kingdom is this. The cross. The cross. The cross has become the most clearly recognized symbol in the world. And it's a symbol of our faith. And I know that we've become very used to it, but have you ever thought that the the cross is a very strange symbol, actually, for a group of people to adopt as its symbol? You see, we have got used to crosses, haven't we? We've got used to seeing crosses in our churches and in our homes and on our walls and wearing them around our necks, even hanging from our ears, stuck on the back of our car. We've got used to those seeing crosses. But on the days when Jesus walks the streets of Palestine, the cross was an instrument of death. The cross was like a guillotine or an electric chair or a gallows. It wasn't an ornament. It was an instrument of death. It wasn't an ornament. An instrument of death and one that was often and regularly used. The movie Spartacus, I don't know if you've ever seen Spartacus, but it's based on a true story. And it tells of a rebellion, a group of slaves rebellion, a rebellion against Roman rule in 71 BC. Sorry, in 73 BC. And in 71 BC, when the Romans crushed their rebellion, along the Appian Way, that main road into Rome from the south, they crucified 6,000 rebellious slaves. 6,000. Another time, 2,000 people in Palestine were crucified for their rebellion against Roman rule. And crucifixion was a horrible, cruel way to die. And you see, that's what Jesus knew what was going to happen to him as he said what he said here in verse 21 of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 16. We've just read. That's the first thing that we see here in our reading this morning, the cross. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, other religions are known for their brightly colored, brightly painted images and gold-covered statues. If you go today to a Hindu temple, there you will see all sorts of very fancy and brightly colored images of dozens of gods. If you visit a Buddhist temple, you will see there fine gold-covered statues of Buddha. But at the center of Christianity, we find a cross. Simple, stark, solitary. An old rugged cross. So what possessed a group of Christians, what possessed Christians to seize upon this device as a, as a, a, of, of execution, as a symbol of faith and life? It doesn't make any sense to the world to find hope in an instrument of torture and life in a symbol of death. But as we've looked at at Matthew's gospel and the teachings of Jesus over these weeks, I hope that you've noticed the radical upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. His is the kingdom with the servant king 
who came to serve and not to be served, who wasn't born in a, in a royal palace, but in a humble and lowly stable. And throughout the accounts of the, the gospel, we see that people, how people responded to Jesus. We see the religious people, the Pharisees, they often rejected him, and they're on the outside. And then we see the sinners, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, accepting his invitation and coming in. They're on the inside. And we see from the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 that the poor, not the rich, are blessed. The meek, not the proud, they inherit the earth. Those who mourn are comforted. Those who are insulted and persecuted because of Jesus, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus taught that many who are considered first in the world will be last in the kingdom, and many who are considered last in the world will be first in the kingdom. And so, in yet another act of turning things upside down, Jesus tells us today that if we lose our lives for his sake, we will save them. And then supremely, he turns an instrument of death into a symbol of life. At the very heart of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom is the cross. And this teaching is difficult. This upside-down kingdom and this cross teaching is difficult for people to get their heads around. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But for those who are being saved, it is the power, the power, the power of God. So let's just take a step back a moment and look at the setting for, for our, the, the, our text this morning. Jesus is on a, a journey with his followers. They're on a journey and they come to a place called Caesarea Philippi and they pause for a moment on that journey. And then using that terminology referring to himself from the book of Daniel, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And verse 14, well, they replied, the disciples, they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You see, all these men were dead, but, but you can imagine how the crowds may visualize that, that this is one of them, one of these great men risen back from the dead. Because he does things that no mortal man can do. He feeds thousands from one lunchbox. He, he heals the sick, the lame, the lepers. He even raises the dead. No mortal man can do these things. And so the crowd reckoned that he must be one of these great prophets come back to life. And Jesus allows his disciples to exhaust the speculations, that little list of who they say he may be, who the disciples have heard them saying he may be. And then he says, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the second thing we want to look at this morning from our passage. The first thing was the cross. Now we see the Christ, the Christ. But, but why would Jesus ask his disciples such a blunt question? With all that had already taken place, the miracles, the teaching, the parables, Jesus wanted to be absolutely sure that they'd got it. Because, you see, everything that Jesus came to do hinges on this statement. Everything hinges on this statement. Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. That's what it's all about. And they needed to get it. And so do we. You see, this is the foundation of our faith and of the church. In fact, that's what Jesus said to Peter here in verse 18. On this rock, on this truth, on this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this truth, I will build my church. The Apostle Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And as we come to sit at the Lord's table by His gracious invitation today, we do well to remember that this is what it's all about. The cross and the Christ are central to what we believe as God's people, as the church. When someone presents a child for baptism or when they decide to become a communicant member and come to the Lord's table for the first time, they're asked to affirm this truth. And you know, with all the wide variety that is in the worldwide Christian church today, the one thing that unites us all is this simple statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, we had a wonderful time here of unity on Tuesday evening. Five churches together, crowned Jesus, praying for just one. Wonderful time of unity. A little glimpse of what's possible as the church declares Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, together. But some people nowadays in, in, in a, an increasingly pluralistic world, they, they want to view Christianity as just one more of the world religions on the little menu, or even the great big menu. One more dish on the menu of religions that, that they might choose alongside Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and any other ism that you can think of. But it's not because he's not. And Jesus hasn't left that option open to us. Look at verse 20. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Peter didn't say you are a Christ. He didn't say, you are a Christ, one of many different options or ways to God. No, Peter answered simply, you are the Christ. Jesus himself says in John 14, I am the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul writes in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You see, Jesus has not offered himself as a number of ways to God. Peter has not declared him as a number of different ways to God. Paul has not offered us or preached Jesus as a number of different ways to God. Simply one of a number. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we see here too an example of Jesus. Oh, at times so annoying, habit of making it all so very personal. First, Jesus asks the disciples, well, the people out there, who do they say? Who do they say I am? And he gets his answer. And he's like, okay, right now, Peter, who do you say I am? Jesus makes it personal. And he's been making it personal ever since. And he makes it personal for us today as well. This morning, 
Jesus stands amongst us. And just like, as with his disciples in our reading, we pause for a moment on the journey. And he asks us, the crowds out there, the people, who do they say I am? And we say, well, some of them think you are a nice guy. Some of them think you are a great moral teacher. Some of them actually think you were the Son of God. Some of them think that you were a bloke who lived and died. Some of, you, some of them think you never existed at all, that you're just a myth. And then Jesus looks us straight in the eye and he says, Okay, right. And who do you say I am? So we see the cross, the Christ, and then thirdly and lastly for this morning from our reading, we see the call to follow. The call to follow. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this following Jesus thing sounds just so demanding, doesn't it? Denying myself, carrying a cross. And I suppose we might ask then, well, why would we want to deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow Jesus? Well, I think it's summed up wonderfully in the words of one of the songs that we sang earlier. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. We will want to follow Jesus because of his great love for us, because of his saving grace, because of what he's done for us, pouring out his life to death, dying in our place, dying our death so that we might have life, life in all its fullness, life eternal. We will want to follow him because of where he is, exalted to the highest place. We will want to follow him because of who he is, king of the heavens. We will want to follow him because of where he is going to bring us home to heaven, where one day we'll bow. We'll want to follow him because he is our Messiah, our Redeemer, our rescue, and our ransom. Because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So then how do we take up our cross and follow him? The Christian writer A.W. Tozer, he describes it this way. He said that when Jesus was carrying his cross, there are three things that we should notice about him. Firstly, he is facing one direction. He is facing Calvary and on to glory. Secondly, he never turns back. He kept going forward. And thirdly, he had no plans of his own. He was completely submitted to the will of his Father. Think about that for a moment. And the same will be true for us. As we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, we will be facing one direction, straight ahead. Straight ahead. Our eyes will be fixed on Jesus. We won't turn back. Our old ways of self-centered living are dead and gone. We're going forward, forward, forward in that newness of life. And thirdly, we have no plans of our own. We simply want to follow Jesus in doing the will of the Father. We'll be committed to Christ and his church. And amongst other things, that will mean being a member of a local church family. 
We have our new members class here on Thursday evening, as I've already referred to. And so if you're not already an active member here or in another congregation, let me invite you to come along and join us and explore that idea. We see too here that Jesus is the example for this self-denying but also life-gaining way of life. Verse 21, Jesus said that he must be killed and, and on the third day be raised to life. It is in this dying that this new resurrection life is possible, both for Jesus and for us. In this upside-down kingdom, we save ourselves by denying ourselves. We find our lives by losing them. We gain life by giving it away. We live by dying. We get to paradise only through Calvary. We get to wear the crown, but only after we've carried the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him. Jesus carried the cross and endured it because of the joy set before him in heaven, in glory. And that joy will be our joy too. And what exactly does it look like to deny ourselves and take up the cross? Well, it means putting into practice the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at in the evenings here. To deny ourselves means putting into practice Jesus' teachings on praying, giving, and fasting. Praying, giving, and fasting are ways of denying ourselves. And what does it mean, or what does it look like to take up our cross? Well, I think that this idea is expressed very well in a little poem that was written by one man who took up his cross, who answered the call. And this poem was found in the home of a Christian man who was martyred, who had been martyred for his faith in Zimbabwe. As he took up his cross and followed Jesus, he wrote this. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I'm no longer need, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. He goes on, I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in his presence, walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer and labor in love. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. He says, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paired up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. 
And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me, for my banner will be clear. These are the words of a man who denied himself, took up his cross, and followed Jesus. So just as I finish, and as I invite the the group to come back up uh, on the platform, just as I finish, from this morning, from his word, from Matthew chapter 16, the Lord has reminded us of the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the kingdom message, the cross, the Christ, and the call to follow. As we move into communion and prayer and praise, we have some time now to reflect on these things, to look upon the cross where he died, to answer that most direct question from Jesus, the most important question we will ever be asked and the most important answer we will ever give. Who do you say I am? And to respond afresh or perhaps even for the very first time to the call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus into life.